Welcome to Transforming Biopharma by Zias. We've been talking about pharma's commercial model, a conversation that cannot ignore the acceleration of technology and analytics, leveraging tools like AI to redefine how we meet our customers where they are and how we work along the way. That's why I'm so excited to welcome my colleague and friend, Arun Shastri, as our guest today. Arun is a principal here at ZS. He's passionate about leveraging data science and advanced analytics to drive organizational effectiveness and to transform digital capabilities. His day-to-day is often outside of healthcare, serving large clients in technology, financial services, travel and transportation, and more. And he has a robust history, though, also across healthcare and biopharma. Arun leads our innovative advanced data science and AI practice and is the co-host of Reinventing Customer Experience podcast and a frequent contributor to Forbes magazine. Arun, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Maria. I think you've had some incredible guests on this podcast and, uh, I hope to do justice and provide insights just as your previous guests have. So thank you for having me. Oh, I have no doubt you will, Arun. So Arun, you're a prolificative writer on how organizations are modernizing and in particular around the customer experience. Based on what you've observed from all the other industries you've worked in, what are some of the keys to a successful transformation? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, digital transformation in general and reinventing organizations is difficult, period. And, you know, the desire to reinvent is strong. Um, More than 90% of people, if you survey, routinely tell you they want to. But the success rate is uh, largely abysmal, I would say. Maybe half of such initiatives actually succeed. And I think it's because uh, the failure rates are quite uh, broad. Uh, All the areas where uh, the failure happens is quite broad. Uh, How... Oh, such transformations fail and why they fail are two very distinct concepts. So when we studied uh, lots of organizations across industries, we found that yeah. how they fail have something to do with uh, the stages of adoption. Um, so, you know, we is the, is the initiative very well thought of? Uh, has it been conceptualized well? Is there executive team support for it? And so on. Then there is a next stage, which is more about adoption of such initiatives or uh, changes. And then a third stage, which is about sustaining it. And each of these stages requires something different in order for the success to happen. And of course, the usual ingredients about what's necessary for such a transformation are ones that you might think of, like leadership or accountability and the makeup of the team. And maybe I can highlight when I look at uh, successful transformations, two or three things that uh, stood out to me. Um, first, in many instances, the leader of such an initiative was a boundary spanner. And I know that we've often tried to say this with many of our biopharma clients as well, too. And the reason that the boundary spanner is important is that this person really understands perhaps where IT is coming from, but also understands what the commercial organization needs and is able to bridge the gap between the two. We also found, especially as it relates to sales organizations, the use of early experience teams as a very important concept uh, in ensuring that whatever transformation sticks. And then last but not least, a very agile approach. Agile is not just for software development. You know, when we were working with Microsoft, one of the concepts that they used was the following. They had this concept of 10-10-10. And the idea simply was the following. 10 hours to define a problem, 10 days to design a model that tries to tackle that problem, and 10 weeks to pilot a solution. 
So that forces you to take a bigger initiative and start to break it into smaller pieces and think very agile and allows you to make these things stick. So agile is an overused term. And so I really like the tangibility of that example, room with Microsoft. It really helps think about rapid proof of concepts at a time when I think pilots are a bit overdone in the industry. So lots of great ideas for how to drive a successful transformation. Let's take a closer look at biopharma. Biopharma, as you know, is in a moment where the change in the commercial model is becoming absolutely more critical. We see a model that is moving from product-centric to true customer-centricity, even though we've said that for a long time, um, and really built on a foundation of digital enablement. So what do you see as the real opportunity here, Arun? You know, and what are the challenges for biopharma in making such a change? When we think about digital transformation, there are two or three impacts on the organization. The first is that decision-making that used to be intermittent now suddenly becomes a bit more continuous. The second is that I used to be able to take many of these decisions independently, but I now find them to be linked. And the third is that I used to be able to rely on experts, but I'm increasingly relying on experts coding their expertise into algorithms and consuming the algorithm. So when you think about this pharma model that you described and you've spoken about at Reuters, for example, you, you are putting all of these three things in play. Because I, as a salesperson, I would make territory plans perhaps once a quarter, and then it was about execution. Now you're telling me that it's much more fluid. It may be every day. My territory plans were mine, but now you're telling me hey, I have to look at all these other channels. Um, and of course, I did many things independently, but now there may be things that another channel has initiated, including, by the way, the physician themselves who, have, who has engaged with me directly, I mean, the company directly, and has asked for something. So it changes and puts into play all of these three things, and that makes it very difficult. And, you know, in general, by the way, the forces that actually disrupt are either customer-driven, they could be employee-driven, or competition-driven. And again, in your case, all three are at play there as well, too. And I think that's what makes this fairly challenging. And um, you know, in, in organizations that have a very dominant sales culture, oftentimes sales does take the lead, but they try to bring marketing along. In organizations that are converse, marketing-dominated, sales comes along. Um, I don't know how you would classify the pharma commercial model. Is it a balance? Is one more dominant than the other? Uh, who yields to one? And I think that's what makes this problem that much more challenging. I really appreciate that description. And, and you know, when I think about all the, uh, the, the different pharma companies I work with, you know, it, it really is varied, right? There's some organizations where marketing is, is in the lead. There's some where sales are, and there's some where actually emerging insights and analytics are even more and more in the driver's seat to the points you're making. But I, I really appreciate, Arun, how in your discussion and description there, you went to the human, right? To the human at the end of the day. At the core, no matter, you know, how the organization has evolved, the core of the pharma model is the sales rep is the sales organization. And I know you're working on a book right now on the modern sales organization and how it's transforming. Can you 
Can you share some of the key principles and, and what it means for those people on the ground and for pharma as a whole as they think about that evolution? Yeah, look, you know, I think the demise of the field sales force is, uh, is uh, vastly exaggerated. Uh, you know, we've been calling for the end of the middleman um, uh, for as long as a century, I think. Uh, there was a New York Times article in 1916 saying essentially that uh, the, uh, the, the, the field sales force or the salesperson is essentially finished. And with digital, again, we are hearing this. It also maybe there is a diminishing. Uh, but, you know, frankly, what we find is that if products get a bit more digital, then you actually need more people, not less people in order for you to be able to do your job. If, on the other hand, if there are more digital channels, then maybe there is a little bit more of a downward pressure on what you need as far as uh, a field salesperson is concerned. So we think, however, that the role of the field salesperson has actually evolved quite a bit. Uh, you know, they are surrounded by many more digital channels. They're surrounded by, uh, you know, other roles. The same cycles are longer. In many instances, the businesses are becoming recurring revenue businesses. So our observation is that uh, the way that you think about managing a sales organization has to evolve to keep pace with that. You know, digital is changing sales roles. Digital is changing our commercial models. Digital is changing what we are our salespeople with. Digital exists and makes the multi-channel world that much more pronounced. And one that many of our clients are asking, hey, with all this digital, am I looking for a salesperson who has a greater digital quotient? What does that mean? And so I think those are some of the concepts that we are exploring in this book. That's fascinating. I actually do believe sales remains critically important. I don't believe the the concept of the rep is dead. Where, where I've been going uh in some of our discussions around the future commercial model, though, is that we have to recognize where is the unique value that a rep on the ground provides in this world today versus all the various activities we've previously had them do. And some of that is because we do have other channels that can maybe do certain things of high value more effectively. But, you know, there there still is a role, um, especially as, as as you said, products change, as as our customers have more data in their hands, they're not sure what to do with it sometimes as we're launching new new assets. So I, I do think there is a role. I guess, what do you think are the most valuable activities for the rep in the future? I think that's a fantastic question. And, you know, I think in a true consultant style, maybe I'll think of a two by two framework to be able to answer that. <laughs> and so in the two by two, consider the following. Um, does the customer understand their needs and the solutions? And that could be a yes or a no. And the other end of the spectrum is, does the seller or the salesperson, or in this case, the farmer sales rep, understand what the customer's needs are and the solutions that might meet those needs? And that is also either a yes or a no. If the salesperson understands but the customer doesn't understand their needs and the solutions, then the role of the salesperson is to educate. And by the way, educate is good, but there's lots of other channels that can help educate too. If, on the other hand, the salesperson doesn't understand or the selling organization doesn't understand, but the customer has very good understanding of what they need and the solutions in the marketplace, then most of the time it's about discovery. 
and you are trying to discover as a sales organization what it is that the customer wants. Now you have to determine what's the best channel to be able to do that. If, if neither the salesperson understands nor the customer understands, by the way, we as consultants find ourselves in that position quite often, <laughs> yes, then we do. Come up creation. You know, a customer comes to us and say, I think I have this problem, so let me ask you a few more questions and then we, we sort of brainstorm with them, have a one or two hour session and then we come up with, oh, what's the problem statement? That's co-creation. Wow, that's a lot of value for a salesperson, right? Because that's how we, we really add value to our customers. And if it is both people understand, I know what it is that you need and you know what it is that you need yourself, it's just about communicating that, aligning that. Well, guess what? Lots of other channels can do that job uh, equally well. Maybe that's a good framework for you to think about uh, uh, yeah, whether the customer understands their needs and the solutions, and do you as a sales organization understand needs and solutions? Oh, this is a great framework, Arun, and it aligns well to the idea that the rep of the future has to be an industrious problem solver. We're no longer interrupting our customers with messaging. Instead, no matter who the customer is, we're listening, we're uncovering needs, we're expanding our aperture to advance their challenges and help them through the journey of their problems. You know, we did some research around recently to understand where customers actually find value from the rep that's in front of them. And I know we think it's product knowledge, but actually it wasn't. We spend 90% of our time training reps on product, and yet it's the connection to the practice. The fact that they know me and can help me and my practice solve problems quicker, that's what matters to customers. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's that's really the, the, the concept behind, I think, what uh, uh, what we're talking about. What is, uh, what does the customer really uh, value? And are you in a position to be able to provide that value? And the more that you're able to unearth what it is that the customer would value, the more more that you are, you are part of that equation. And I think that's where it's important. By the way, this also this notion of sales-led, marketing-led, jointly-led, orchestrated, who orchestrates it, that also comes into play based on your understanding of the customer. In Perhaps in more complex therapeutic categories, you may need to be more sales-led. The salesperson may have a much more dominant position in trying to understand the practice, the physician, and so on. In perhaps in other less complex therapeutic categories, you can be a bit more marketing-led or even customer-led, as the case might be. And now you're talking about a lot of operational inefficiency, Arun. <laughs> That's true. That is true. There is a limitation that comes in when we think about being customer-centric only at the level of the field. So what do I mean by that? When sales owns the relationship and owns the knowledge about that customer, how can the organization truly bring its weight and might to help solve the challenges that customer face? How do they really pull back and understand that insight to deliver different types of solutions? Um, you know, and so, so one of the things we've been talking about is the future as the organization owns the customer. And the rep is a very critical interplay of that and has a lot of insight into that. But we need to codify that. We need to get down deeper into all the touch points we have with that customer and understand as an organization what to do with it. Absolutely. And you know, uh, by the way, there is a difference between orchestration and lead. Mm. You can have an organization lead the customer journey, but the actions could be much more orchestrated by different channels at different times. And in a large environment, let's say you are a large tech organization such as Microsoft, 
there is a range of products that they sell and there's a range of customers that they address. They have large corporate customers, but they also have small and medium businesses. In small and medium businesses, the organization may do more to orchestrate across the different channels. But for enterprise customers, they may not want it to be orchestrated more centrally. They may want to give that enterprise salesperson a greater chance to bring some of the other digital channels into play. So that's the nuance I think we have to think about. And you have to think about how that applies perhaps to the physician world and, and pharma. I think that's a fantastic differentiation, you know, being led versus orchestrated. And I'm so glad you went back to the enterprise because you made a comment earlier that I think is really important for us to discuss about how the business in many cases, especially around enterprise customers, is becoming more about that larger relationship organization to organization, recurring revenue businesses. Um, Arun, I'm going to be straight. You know, pharma has tried CAM, has tried enterprise relationships many times over and hasn't quite made it the way other industries have. What, yeah, you know, you're, you're sitting outside of other industries driving B2B relationships. Can you talk a bit about what's the difference? What's what's holding pharma back from, from establishing those true relationships uh, of value? I think it's, a, it's an entirely different business to manage. If I look at managing performance, if I'm selling something to you and walking away, uh, it's just the nature of that sale. And my revenue and my performance measures and everything else is measured on, did I complete the sale or not? My commission is paid or my, my goal is met based on whether I close that sale or not. Now, if I'm, if I'm uh, it's going to be a recurring revenue business and I'm worried about what you consume today, but also what you consume tomorrow, lots of things change. First and foremost, my mindset has to change. I am now mute mining for mutual value. So I am much more invested in your success on a longer term, which is not to say that I wasn't in the prior model, but this becomes front and center. Second, all the ways that my performance is measured is also evolved. I have to think about things like, what was my cost of acquisition for this customer? What's my monthly run rate in the case of a software as a service, for example? I'm worried about customer retention. I'm worried about customer churn. Third, I have a lot more newer roles that come in that I have to find a way to exist with. I have technical specialists in the case of uh, software as a service, for example. I have a customer success manager. So for example, ZS might buy something from AWS and then we have assigned a customer success manager who works with our IT department to make sure that we are using cloud in the most compelling way possible. That suddenly the salesperson has to have uh, the thing of that role. And the salesperson has to be wondering, hey, do I do I try to do more with the current customer? Do I try to land new customer? So mindsets changing, performance measures changing, new roles are being introduced. So actually, there's quite a bit of complexity in the system. So perhaps what we have to ask is, how did we really change? Or is it just that we asked that organizations change? Or did we actually change the ecosystem to reflect all these newer realities and complexities that I just mentioned? What do you think, Maria? Is that something that you feel companies have done? I think it, you're spot on that we, we've missed that. I think we've restructured and we've placed really fantastic salespeople into enterprise roles. 
But if you really think about have we shifted the incentives in, a, in the way portfolio, have we have we actually aligned on what are going to be the new types of things that really drive partnership and and value? I don't I don't think we've gotten there. Um, you know, and I I really like the example you gave me a, a while ago uh, when Satya came into to Microsoft and he changed from, you know, contracts that were lifetime contracts to annualized subscriptions, which seems the opposite of what you would want to do, right? Lifetime value versus annualized subscriptions. Yes, there's probably an economic argument there, but that in and of itself makes every mindset different in terms of how I serve the customer every day translates into their loyalty and engagement with me over time. And I, I don't know that that's something that pharma has embedded yet, is that that kind of uh, approach. And by the way, I'm not so sure it was easy for them either. When I say them, I mean Microsoft uh, oh. or Adobe, for for that matter. And in fact, in the case of Adobe, uh, many customers revolted. So not hmm. only did Shantanu Narayan have to deal with uh, uh, his own employees, but he had to deal with irate customers saying, what are you doing? Uh, why are you making subscription? I'm so used to working in uh, the way I'm doing it. And, you know, slowly but surely, he had a vision to expand uh, what it is that he was doing and serve a broader customer base. So I think, uh, not to belabor the point, but I think lots of these accompanying systems have to change, the mindset has to change, uh, uh, and so on. I think all of these concepts become much, that much more important. Absolutely. And, you know, Aruna, I want to talk about, you know, it, to make all these changes and to deliver on the ground to your customer in a way that serves their needs. Help them, I love your statement, help them understand what their problems are first or their needs are and then and then help them solve it. It requires a very different level and sophistication of data and understanding about customers than we see today. Um, can you talk a little bit about data, where it's heading, the importance of it, and how, how we start to build in pharma the data that can actually allow us to do this on the ground? One thing, it might sound strange to you uh, because you are uh, a leader in this industry, but uh, but when I look at other industries, I'm actually quite envious of pharma. The amount of data that pharma does have is quite astounding. I mean, I, I can't think of many other industries where I know what my market share is uh, and has been uh, at uh, at an individual customer level like I can with pharma. So I think there is a, uh, I, I think there is a good amount of data. The second thing is I would say is I'm also quite impressed, and I have been over the last several decades, that pharma actually is not bad, actually is very good at data-driven decision-making. I think that what you're pointing out in the commercial model of the future is that perhaps we can apply these skills to solving a different problem, not the same problem that we've done. And by the way, what you are attempting to do, Maria, is actually disrupt the decision-making in a meaningful way, and that's often the most difficult thing to do. You know, we are used to working in silos and what you're suggesting is, hey, I don't want the sales representative organization to optimize its own function and the marketing outreach to optimize its own function. Let me optimize these together. And that's disruptive to the organization. So that's uh, a bit more challenging uh, to be able to pull off. Um, so yes, I, I, on the other hand, do think that there's a lot of data already. This is a data-rich environment. And there are very few industries would and you have a legacy of good sound decision making, and uh, uh, and I think that that's I, that should serve well. I think, but just disrupting that, I think, is the bigger challenge. 
Well, and, and let's talk about that because, you know, abundance of data, richness of data doesn't necessarily mean you can get to the better decisions. In fact, when we did our future of health study, you know, we're so excited about the amount of personal data that can now be generated through wearables, for example, and given to your oncologist as they're looking at everything else. And 87% of oncologists in the USA, I don't know what to do with this. It's too much. It's not, it's not, it's not yet sophisticated in a way that I can I can quickly look at it, read it, understand it, fit it into the rest of my understanding and my actions. And so I feel like the same thing is true for pharma. And now I have to bring it up. Like, you know, we're talking about AI, generative AI, large language models, like is is this part of the solution to really the abundance of data and, and utilizing it in the best way, as you say, across functions? Like how, how these things come into play? I think of AI as uh, yet another tool in our toolkit. And, you know, when I think about the, the, the decision-making journey across industries, we've gone from data-driven decision-making to AI-driven decision-making. What does that mean? That means that, you know, in the old days, all we did was we used our human judgment as the best form of making decisions. From there, we said, hey, more and more data is being available. Let me try to summarize the data. And then based on that summarized data, let me try to make some decisions. Now, AI is far more capable of orchestrating this. So for this physician who came to my website and pulled down this uh, report, let me send the following as a follow-up and let me make, alert the salesperson that's a very AI-driven decision-making uh, mechanism. And we have the capability to be able to do that. So there is increased sophistication and a desire. And what you are trying to achieve through this new commercial model, you have to have that greater sense of sophistication to be able to pull off an N equals customer-driven strategy, N equals one customer-driven strategy. So AI is important. Now, having said all of this, uh, you know, if I look at survey after survey over the last five years, routinely we find about 50% of organizations across industries have adopted AI in, in a big way in more than one business unit. So in other words, it's still fairly low. And so now we have this newer tool in our toolkit. And of course, it's mind-blowing, its capabilities, and that's generative AI. But I suspect it will, it too will go through some journey of its own as well. If I think about AI's journey, you know, we, we were very good at solving point problems. You know, what's the next best action for this physician or who's likely to churn or um, what should I, which next product should I talk to with whom? And then we said, well, it's not enough just to solve these point problems. Let's think of them as part of a broader program. And then from there, we said, well, yeah, you know, I got to get people to take action. How do I make sure that the salesperson actually takes this and does something with it? And then we said, okay, how about we scale this? It can't just be in one part of our organization. Can we actually move it to several parts of the organization? So we've been on this journey. And, and now suddenly generative AI comes along and it's saying, hey, well, I can democratize many things. I can put this in the hands of lots of people. Uh, to be able to do clever things. Um, and it has to somehow coexist with the more classical AI uh, 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 algorithms as well, too. And I think that's kind of where we find ourselves. I think AI is going to be a very important level for most organizations, but I think we're going to discover and uncover where we're going to make it fit and where we're going to make it work. And generative AI is just the latest tool in this grand scheme of things. 
Thank you, Arun. The omnichannel next best action decision engine is a good one. Just as I scan the industry in my head, even just the use of AI to truly drive that decision engine, we're not fully there yet as an industry. Maybe 30% or so of companies are on the far right of that spectrum, but everybody's on a journey. Generative AI has so much hype, though. I mean, we're hearing it could basically replace many, many, many things across the spectrum. So be real with me. What should we be focusing on now in terms of what can really, really help us achieve and what is still hype in your mind? Uh, if you're an aerobics instructor or a dancer, your job is safe. Uh, <laughs> let me begin there. Um, but I think it will disrupt many of our jobs. And um, I think that, and the reason it will disrupt our jobs is that I think it, it has the possibility to act as a co-pilot to make us more effective. If I think of a job as a collection of tasks, there are some tasks that it is very, very good at. So for a physician, it may be reduction of paperwork, uh, for example, right? Uh, there are some things that it's not yet good at. You know, in general, with large language models, all large language models hallucinate. And so we, good luck trying to get rid of the hallucination. So we have to be careful if there are human-moderated or human-consumed tasks, then we can be a little bit more bold and say, hey, let me use a large language model. I let it provide some output, and then I am going to take a look at it and then generate some action. And that might be a little bit lower risk. But for everything else, I think there are certain risks that we have to be careful about. So one framework uh, that I have uh, often used is the following. How sensitive is your data? If it is public data, less sensitive. If it is PHI, far more sensitive. If it's confidential data, perhaps some level of sensitivity somewhere between public and PHI. What are you using these generative AI models for? If it's fetching information for me, that's one end of the spectrum. If it is automating something, a conversation with a patient, conversation with a doctor, then that's a little bit scarier. In general, higher data sensitivity, so in other words, PHI, automated decision-making, such as a consumer chatbot, that's what would fall in that category. Very high risk. We are probably not there yet. Public data, fetching it for me, for my consumption, much lower risk. We should be thinking about all such use cases and be leveraging generative AI. We've seen enormous gains in productivity uh, by by replacing such tasks. What used to take us two weeks perhaps takes us a day now. So huge productivity gains on things like that. But not everything that you and I do every day, Maria, is public information and uh, uh, fetching it for us uh, on which we make decisions. So we do a lot of more complicated tasks and weaving generative AI in that, I think it's going to take time uh, before we are disrupted. So every conversation these days, large language models comes up, um, you know, and its potential. And you know, I, I'd love, I'd love you just to maybe take a minute to define large language models and and to to talk about is it the model or is it the data that at the end of the day is really the differentiation that companies are looking for. This notion of foundation models um, it, it has been brewing for a while. Um, in fact, uh, Stanford uh, University is the one that coined this phrase, foundation models. And the idea is that there is this sort of foundation aspect 
on which we can build a lot of applications that enable us to do things. That's really the idea. And large language models is one such category from these generative AI models. And the large language models are what we call stochastic parrots. So you give it a phrase and essentially it tries to probabilistically guess from its repertoire what the next word or the next token or the next set of words are going to look like. And it starts completing that sentence. And it has essentially hoovered the entire data from uh, from, the, from the internet. So everything that's ever been written has been fed into these models and they have large, uh, you know, they are larger and larger models, billions and billions of parameters, you know, it says, uh, because we are trying to mimic how we think the human mind works, you know, with these neurons and synapses that fire, that connect these neurons and how we make decision-making. So we add more and more parameters to these models, make them more and more powerful. And some of what they do is quite astounding. You know, they can do reason, they can do some basic algebra. You can ask it any question and it comes back with a, uh, a fantastic answer and so on. But the, all this is good. You know, you can say, hey, well, you know, what are the four things that Maria should ask Arun if she's going to have this topic? And we'll probably tell you what the four things are and can guide you on that as a co-pilot. But the differentiation, uh, I think we believe, is going to come from not just this replacement of the tasks, but from evolution of the processes or transforming the organization themselves. And for that to happen, I think one has to have domain expertise. It's not just, uh, uh, it's not just about the power of the model, power of the algorithm. After all that, all of us have that. It's all open source anyway. It's going to come from the domain expertise. It's also going to come from a systems perspective. You know, the first part of this conversation where we spent a lot of time talking about the salesperson vis-a-vis -vis other marketing channels, sales within a commercial organization, marketing in a commercial organization, how all these things come together. That sort of systems view is really important in being able to leverage generative AI to get us to that next stage. And then, of course, last but not least, none of these things happen unless we have good, strong change management techniques. So we're going we're gonna to have a change management in spades in order for us to be able to pull off. One way to think about the nature of these generative AI models is the following. We all have uh, been made aware of or participated in our primary market research or qualitative market research studies. And essentially, we come up with a questionnaire, we go field it, we get a lot of open-ended responses, we come back, we analyze it, we summarize our findings and disseminate it. The first step in leveraging generative AI is simply to say, hey, um, let me load all this data, let me ask the question, and this generative AI model is going to tell me what the answer is, because it's got the capability to go inside the database of all my open-ended responses and come back to me and tell me, hey, here's what I found. Here's what your respondents said. Namely, however, we should evolve the process to say, maybe the hypothesis should also be generated by these large language models. So maybe we load all these responses, it goes through these responses, generates the questions, answers the questions, and gives you both. But then you can think a little bit further and say, wait a minute, you know, Dr. Whitman, here's what I know about her behavior from secondary data. Let me write a bot that engages her one-on-one, -on -one, asks her question. She responds. Based on her response, asks another question back. 
She responds, and I have a dialogue. So you see, the concept of the questionnaire itself has been appended. And as we go from a simple asking the question, giving an answer, to this more complicated transforming the primary market research process, you lots of things need to come into play to make that happen. Many of the things we talked about in the digital transformation. You know, how do I bring about change management? Do I have a good understanding of the system as a whole? What sort of data do I need? What other data can I append? Do I have true expertise in the domain of marketing and quality of market research to be able to design these bots and make them happen? So I think it's much more than just the model or the algorithm in order to make it come to life. What a great example, because you're not just replacing a process today. You're creating a much more robust and rich future of understanding. And you're generating new data about someone you never would get in a normal one-hour conversation back-to-back. All of us use Teams. All of us use Zoom. All of us use these technology products. Have you noticed after you finish a call on Teams or WhatsApp, they ask you some things? You know, they're embedding a lot of primary market research in the product itself. Really? There's an entire community for many technology products where you can actually give feedback on the product itself and say, I think I found a bug in your code. I think you can make this better, uh, etc. Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because we are collecting information from our customers in more meaningful ways with broader purposes in mind. And in the past, you know, maybe we would go and ask somebody, do you like this product? What do you think? And we'd go and ask somebody else, hey, what else can I be adding as features on this product? And now, guess what? I'm able to, with the same person, maybe address more than that, that question. And I know how much more valuable you are if you give me feedback on my product, if I'm Microsoft, you give me feedback on my product, the fact that you might be referring my products to others, the fact that you might be belonging to a community of people where you go out and you influence others towards my products, and the fact that you appreciate my products by telling me hey, I think I, I, I guess this call was of good quality and I enjoyed using uh, a Microsoft Teams to make this call, as the case might be. So you see, my relationship with my customer is a little bit more complex and not every customer. And in fact, that influences my ability to understand if that customer is an influencer, who else they influence, how they participate in the broader community, how they engage with me, what ideas I can derive from them on my product, the richness comes not just by my enhanced understanding about them in a single dimension. The richness comes in my relationship with them. And I think that generative AI can really help us expand in a big way. And back to your earlier point, that means you need people at the center who are much more cross-functional and enterprise-minded because in our silos, we'll never capture the genuine benefit of, of what that relationship could be. 100% I agree on that. So two more questions, Arun. Yes. So we have executives across the biopharma industry listening in. What is your most important piece of advice to them today? I think um, there are many things that I feel that people are quite passionate, uh, uh, passionate about. And oftentimes I think we feel, especially in regulated industries, that we have to be slow. Because we are a regulated industry, um, 
that somehow maybe I can't quite chase all these passions. We have to be careful about compliance. You have to be careful about. And I think that uh, two pieces of advice, I think. One is start breaking the problem into smaller problems. You know, you can have that longer term vision in mind. I mean, if you read Satya Nadella's Hit Refresh book, I think one of the things I find quite remarkable is that he motivates the organization by thinking about the longer term and where Microsoft is headed, always. But he focuses very much on the opportunities of today with an eye for tomorrow. So he uses the longer term to motivate people towards a vision, but he's constantly restless and brings that growth mindset about the today. So one piece of advice is start breaking the problem into smaller, more digestible pieces, but motivate the organization to, to, to be thinking about the future. The second is, I think when new technologies come, there are two types of people in this world in general. I know I'm sort of like stereotyping. Um, and by the way, I also fall into both these categories depending on the technology, I suppose. But one is, lots of people tend to focus on its failings. Oh, GPT-4 isn't quite what it's meant cracked up to be. It's a B player. It's not this. It's not that. And then there's another group of people who wake up and say, oh my God, this chat GPT-4, these large language, look at the power. Where can I apply it? Where do you want to be? Do you focus on what it can do or do you focus on what it cannot? Because maybe now what it cannot do is a much broader list than what it can, but what it can is incredibly special. So maybe get going there and then you can figure out how uh, you can impact the organization. I couldn't agree more. Let's let's really dig in. Let's use it. Let's take the wins and let's learn from it for the future. Um, one more question to wrap up. Here's a question I ask all my interviewees. If you could change one thing about healthcare, what would it be? Maybe I'll answer this not so much as a, as a consultant, uh, but I'll answer this as a consumer. And my answer would be, I think, it would be fantastic if we could provide patients and their families tools to manage their health conditions themselves. And I think in providing such tools, perhaps we can drive more consistency in the healthcare system. Because I think perhaps one of the most annoying things for us is we go to different physicians, you might get a different diagnosis uh, or a recommendation. I would love to try to get more consistency. And I think one way to do that is to find ways to enable me to manage my health and my family's health myself. And I think, by the way, uh, if I put my generative AI hat back on, I think that there's enormous potential um, for generative AI to actually be able to influence that in the future. Yeah, Arun, you're in the, the more than 50% uh, of Americans who really want to have a stronger role in their daily health. And I think I think what you're talking about will help us propel past sick care into health care, into health span, as we, as we are talking about so broadly uh, in life these days. But it's a wonderful answer. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. This has been another episode of Transforming Biopharma by ZS. Please subscribe and leave a review. And to learn more about ZS's work on Pharma's commercial model, visit zs.com slash future model. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.